Welcome to the podcast of the Las Vegas Rotary Club. My name is Jim Cole, and I'm proud to be the 96th president of Las Vegas Rotary. Las Vegas Rotary's main focus is on youth, specifically youth literacy and life skill development. If you're in town, we invite you to join us at the Lowry's Prime Rib at noon on Thursdays. You can also find more information about our meetings on lasvegasrotary.com. If you're unable to join us, we live stream our meetings on Facebook at noon Pacific time Thursdays. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Good afternoon, Rotarians. It's my distinct honor to introduce Dwayne Matters. And I think after your presentation, you'll see that Dwayne does actually matter. So, sorry. <laughs> Silly pun. Uh, in speak, you can read his bio. It's quite impressive. In speaking at the table, I asked him a little bit about his background. He actually grew up as an Air Force brat and lived all over the world. And I asked him about his hobby, and he said his hobby is a rock hound, and so collecting rocks. And so the Air Force had the distinct pleasure of moving 500 pounds of rocks from Germany to Texas to Massachusetts to California. So uh, that's why they have those big planes, I guess. So with no further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Dwayne Matters. Big, warm, watery, rotary welcome. Um, what I've had up here for a while is I have a sp presentation I've given 10 years ago and, uh, at the 10-year uh, and, and commemoration. And generally, I found I've never been able to get through that whole presentation. And what people always say is, we really would like to see some pictures of what, what it was like up there. And one of my functions was to document work activity and document equipment locations and things of that nature. And I actually had an authorized photographer badge. Therefore, my camera couldn't be confiscated by the National Guard or the PAPD or the NYPD. So I ended up with about 10,843 photographs from the pile and in the pit. And so I, I just selected a few, and I throw them in there. And then on the 10-year commemoration, I did a pop-up museum at the Main Street Station where I think, what was it, about 105 photographs, give or take, and put them around the room. Some of those are over there. If you have time afterwards, if you'd like to take a look at what I brought in, they're things I actually somewhat pulled out of the trash as we moved from site to site, and they moved our offices from place to place when working at Ground Zero, because we never really stayed put very long, very fast. Let me see if I can get this to switch over to the presentation. not time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I had the distinct pleasure and actual honor, I consider it, to serve at Ground Zero from September 15th to March 31st. Uh, I went, originally went down there to set up an air monitoring network. The company I worked for out of Massachusetts had the only crane in lower Manhattan working at a port authority facility some people might know is the Staten Island Ferry Terminal. And our contract got quickly mobilized. We marched the crane up uh, East Broadway. They brought it to the south side of the site, and they started working on the 12th with heavy equipment. 
heavy equipment was actually crucial to that job. You could not have done that job with Homer buckets. Um, it was just one of those things. And over time, we, we brought more equipment in and more equipment in. We hired iron workers. And what I really would like to leave you with here um, is a lot of people lost their lives that day. A lot of people made very difficult decisions. And a lot of people that made difficult decisions those days were people that were just routine people off the street, iron workers, carpenters, operating engineers, that went in after everything fell. We are losing a ground zero worker a week from exposures that they had there. And one of my jobs there was to run the health and safety program from what was the Port Authority sector to eventually the whole 12-acre site at one point. And I thought we did a very good job. But I look back now and I say losing one worker a week, it, it takes a hit on me personally. But what I'd like to show you is basically the layout of the site. You had 210-story glass buildings. You had a couple nine-floor buildings, a 47-floor building, the, the uh, mayor's emergency management office was in that, Tower 7. And then you had the Marriott Hotel, Tower 3, which is 22 floors. You have an awful lot of glass. Glass is silica, glass is breathable. Um, and you had major, major destruction. Anything in red was to ground that day by the end of the day. Everything in this green was still standing partially. Everything in yellow was damaged. That's kind of the same outlay with the building outlines there. There's also an aerial that hung in my office for a while over on the uh, table that's about the same thing. It just doesn't have the building outlines that shows it. The blue line going across is the former shoreline of Manhattan in the 1700s. Uh, so that shows you that what the towers and what the whole site was built on was essentially reclaimed land. And a lot of that reclaimed land came from the area inside the blue. People heard about the slurry wall, which I hope we'll get to talk about later. A lot of that material came from inside that slurry wall so we could put the buildings up later on. One of the biggest issues, you have a 12-acre site. There aren't many ways to get to the center of 12 acres to lift anything if it's all destroyed. So one of the things we, that was done was LIDAR. That was one of the first real strong applications of LIDAR technology, which is a GPS, radar, combined technology that gives very precise height and GPS coordinations. And we were able to then pick what, where we wanted to put cranes based upon the ability to do lift and the ability to reach things. What I'd like you to take from this photo, and this is looking pretty much due, south, um, due west, do you see that little crater? And I figure this is not going to show up here. But if you notice that crater, that building is Tower 6. The top 12, 15 floors of Tower 1, as it went down, creaked into that, fell into Tower 6, caught Tower 6 on fire. Many of you may have seen the cross that was put up at Ground Zero at one point. It's now in a museum. At the, uh, it's part of the National uh, Museum. That was actually found in that crater. And uh, we moved it around a couple times, put it up on the stanchions for the North Tower to Winter Garden um, Bridge that was also collapsed. As, uh, as most of you may know, the initial incident, we had 210-story buildings down. We had several nine-story buildings down. 
we were told when I got there on the 15th there were 5,000, maybe 10,000 people dead or missing. The only hard count that was out there were the aircraft. That was the only hard count for days. We had a, a, a response that was proper incident command run through the FDNY, but then you also had civilians, as I mentioned, that ran in and they wanted to start moving concrete, moving dust, moving things, which is very dangerous in an incident command structure and also very dangerous in that environment where you have a lot of loose debris, a lot of uh, contaminants, a lot of things that are really people shouldn't be exposed to unless they know what they're doing. And we didn't have any safe egress. We were very concerned that buildings around the site might collapse. World Financial One, uh, the Deutsche Bank building, we were concerned that that might fall in the process. We were concerned that the slurry wall would give way. If that happened, although people use the expression that the Hudson River would come rushing in, it wouldn't be quite like that, but it would be pretty close. You would have all that water that was west of the site only by about 800 to 1,000 feet moving into the site. We had no way in the first three or four days to move 5,000 workers out in less than an hour, let alone five minutes. So we had to get the streets cleared. That's an early photo from the 14th, looking at Tower 1. It was about 13 stories of debris. So we went from 110 to 13 stories, highly compacted. And we'll see some, some of the compaction later on. That's looking along the west side of Tower 1, down West Side Highway, West Street, looking south. You can see how much debris is in the road. You couldn't crawl over that and get out if you had to get out in an hour. That's what it looked like four days later after bringing heavy equipment in and getting people who know how to move debris, iron workers, um, operating engineers. Those guys are the real heroes from September 12 on. Those guys knew how to cut stuff. They knew how to move stuff. There, there is an OSHA constandard instruction for doing work. There's no such thing as an OSHA demolition structure for doing work. So these guys lack of phrase, they did the Lord's work that on those days. That's looking on the south side. If you see where a little bit in front of that grappler that's in front, that's about where the Greek Orthodox Church was sitting. It was pounded to ground. Not recognizable in any sense, way, shape, or fashion. That's Tower 6 looking into the crater. And that's the cross that we found in the middle that's now sitting in the museum. You have one chance to look at that out of your way. We used an awful lot of heavy equipment, and that equipment all had specific purposes. Depending upon its size is where it got posted and we would watch these guys move things round and round. We brought in cranes. We had our Manitowoc 4100. We brought in, and we'll see a picture of it in a, in a minute, what we called the BFC, the big freaking crane, which was the, I think it's the second or third largest crane that's land-based for lifting equipment or lifting um, mass. 
and it came in on about 12 or 15 flatbeds from Cleveland. And it came in, I want to say, sometime about the third week of September. The white one is the BFC. This is actually the one on the left is the crane that we actually brought in from the Staten Island Ferry Terminal about three quarters of a mile away and walked it up the street. You know, a little orientation here. Up in the upper right-hand corner, that is the west side of Tower 2. Up a little bit to the right of the left-hand corner, that's the northeast skin of Tower 1. Then you have Tower 6 and Tower 5 running along the side. And this is the type of equipment we had. Uh, depending upon what it was doing, what was being lifted, and where it was. And physically, I, and I had a picture. I deleted it out of here, I'm pretty sure. But we would station these cranes as we were able to get to the pile and do it safely. We would station, uh, station these grapplers so far apart from each other, and they would physically hand steel to each other without putting it on ground. These guys know how to use their claws, and they save time by doing that, because putting it down, picking it up, then picking it up, and then moving it over, that's three, touching it three times to move it once. And these guys could do it, move it down the pile all at once. It was an absolute alphabet soup of contaminants. If you can think of a letter of the alphabet, I can give you something that if it's not a carcinogen, it's something that you shouldn't be exposed to and you shouldn't be exposed to for the hours that people were working. A shift was 12 hours. A shift for me was 14, sometimes 18, because I had responsibilities for meetings. But every one of these things will do damage to you. Everyone thought about asbestos, of course, but everything down that line uh, based upon what the building was made out of. Think about taking any building, this one for instance, and crushing it and burning it. What's going to be given off from the fluorescent lights to the glue and the laminates to the wire? Um, and then on top of that, the buildings on Tower 6 and Tower 5 were government buildings. They had labs in them, and they also had shooting ranges in them. So there were ammunition issues we had to deal with over time. There were numerous error monitoring programs. My company ran one. That's what I went down there originally for for the first week. It was the week I was supposed to be out. I asked to stay. But US EPA, OSHA, New York City, NIOSH, Liberty Mutual, um, physically almost everyone was running error monitoring programs. I would come to work in the morning or uh, in the evening, and I would find error monitoring reports about an inch thick to, to tell me what had happened the night before or the day of. We would get safety bulletins routinely from the Department of Design and Construction. That was the New York City's representative for overseeing this job. People have a, a misconstrued notion of what FEMA does. FEMA does have response teams, but FEMA's biggest responsibility in any disaster is to make sure that locals have what they need to do what they need, whether it be money, equipment, staging, you don't generally find FEMA workers doing all the work. What you find is they are the, the glue that holds everything in between. They're the cement in the piece of sandstone. And then the sand is all the little agencies or entities like what I was working for uh, to get the work done. 
we, uh, we found an awful lot of ammunition out of Tower 6. I actually had an iron worker that was cutting on Tower 6 one night, and a round went off and grazed his shield. That's when we realized we had a problem. That was the first time anyone ever brought up ammunition, other than the fact that right after the job, uh, the Secret Service, the FBI, they wanted in the basement of Tower 6 because their cars were there, they had weapons in their cars, and they didn't want people going in there and getting those weapons. And there was a picture in the, uh, the slideshow that was in there of those cars. They were burned. There was nothing there salvageable at all. But they, by the 17th of September, they wanted it in that garage no matter how unsafe it was. And that's just the meeting reports from that. We would receive work area notifications where you can and cannot go. If you're on that shift, we had horns we would blow. We would let people know that we're about to drop something. Uh, and I would brief my workers, my iron worker crew, and we would make sure that everyone had a copy of this thing so they knew where they were and where they weren't supposed to be. And, that if, and we would quiz them and say, I'm going to blow two blows on a horn. What does that mean? Um, our goal was, at, in the beginning there, no deaths. And this is the easiest way, just not knowing your surrounding. We now use the phrase situational awareness. One of the problems we had was keeping those cranes and the equipment stable. It's reclaimed land. It's reclaimed land that has undergone a traumatic situation. And we have a slurry wall that we thought was damaged also. So we had to platform this equipment before we could set it up to go. You there? Very good. Um, so we would get direction from DDC. The engineers would go through, they would go uh, design something, and I actually have some plans in here that I can kind of show you how this was done. It was really done on the fly, and it was actually magical the way they would do this. We couldn't wait for material, go up. We couldn't wait for materials to arrive at the site. We reclaimed materials from the site. Those are box columns from the elevator shaft at Tower 1. We took those, we, and we cut them, and we used those as the beginning of the platform. Is that any better? Thank you. We cut those. We figured if they would hold up a 110-story building, they will hold up a 40-ton piece of equipment. We buried them. We made sandwiches out of them. I don't know if they ever came out of the ground, to be honest with you. I, I never saw anyone dig them up. It's, that's near West Side Highway. Basically, if you see the bridge in the background, West Side Highway went under that. So that's just on the east side of West Side Highway. And this is how those things were designed. You get engineers, some of them young, some of them old, with a pencil, pad, calculator. And they would draw this stuff up on the fly. And they would do it. Then someone else would look at it. And sometimes it would come back like that. You can do the one on the, on the uh, left, but you can't do the one on the right. And it allowed us to get equipment close to the site. It allowed us to protect the slurry wall. Because the last thing, we had to bring equipment off the pile every 12 hours to get fuel, to get maintenance. So it would have gone across the slurry wall. The more times across the slurry wall, the more chance you have to damage it. So we ramped over it. 
That's what happens if you don't look at a stable structure. There were massive voids in that pile, and you didn't know what was under you. Sometimes there was nothing. Sometimes it was like pixie sticks, and you were just relying on everything kind of being totally static and holding itself together. That guy didn't get hurt either. He was back at work once we got another uh, piece of equipment for him. The biggest issue that I think scared the hell out of most of us was Freon. Freon, we're all used to it, air conditioning units. The, the Trade Center complex had the largest uh, air conditioning plant in North America. When you burn Freon, you make phosgene gas. Phosgene gas, mustard gas, World War I stuff that drops you in about 15 seconds to 30 seconds after you've inhaled a certain amount. We did not know what happened to the plant in the basement of Tower 1 over, at, I think it was at level B3. Uh, we went through a reclamation process. We went through a process of trying to find the lines to see if they were broken anywhere in the substructure of the building. And it became, a, we actually had what we called the Freon monitoring team. And I remember being at the meeting that night and they said they were going to institute the Freon monitoring team and here's what it's going to consist of. Who wants, to, who wants to be part of it? My hand was up before the echo left the room because I figured if someone was going to put a monitor on me that read real time that there was phosgene gas in the air, I think I'd want to be the one getting it and that rather than relying on the guy that's running away telling me it's been detected. So, so I, I wore it. And they taught us what dissolved Freon gas looks like in water because it look, water looks different when there's dissolved Freon gas and it. it has kind of a greenish tinge to it. Kind of looks like a, a pond that's gone through deoxygenization. Um, so you can spot it pretty quickly. And there was a lot of water there, although we haven't seen many pictures of it. There was continual firefighting going on, even into January on that pile. And I'll let you guys read that. That came from the congressional uh, record. I found that not long ago. We didn't know we signed up for that. We had no idea. I've been doing environmental work for 30 years. I've worked on Superfund sites for 10 years of my life. I'm not used to that. That's the extent of the fires in 2001. Every, that, that pile insulated the fires. It kept everything that was hot, hot inside that pile. And as you pulled things off, they would come out hot. And sometimes if there was a, a little bit of fuel there, it would light up on fire. There's a picture at the end of the slideshow where uh, I have two pictures of myself. I don't have many pictures of myself there. And I look kind of gray. I have my safety glasses off. And I look like Rocket J Squirrel from Bullwinkle. I got caught out in a fire for about an hour and a half. A, a grappler pulled a piece of steel out. Everything went up. And they taught us very well how to work with things. One of the things they said was, if you lose sight of your grappler operator, stay where you are. 
don't move. He knows where you are. You move. He's going to keep working. He's going to work. And if he's moving a 30-ton piece of steel and you've moved, he's going to hit you and your hard hat's not going to do you any good. So get to ground. Stay put. They will put water on the fire and get you out. But don't go anywhere unless someone has line of sight on you and you've got um, corroboration that you both know where you're both at. That was the, the first safety bulletin we got on the, the chiller plant. We never thought about that in the process of September 15, September 20. And in the process of going through the, the sub-basements of the building, level B1, 2, 3, and all that, we were looking for things that said refrigerant on it to see what the condition of that pipe was. That's actually the chiller plant right there on the west side, kind of the southwest side of Tower 1. Those are two of the tanks you see there. That's the turn down for chilling the water that feeds that plant. That's the process of, of what, they, what they looked like as we dug them out. They were intact. They did not have much Freon in them. We collected Freon from various piping structures that we found. We did collect some from one or two of the tanks, but we never collected all of it. I don't think we even got 10% if I had to throw a guess out there of it. We had a special radio system set up. I normally carried one radio. Because I was on the Freon monitoring team, I carried two radios. You had to make sure you knew which one you were talking on at the time. So that if there was a Freon emergency or a FOS gene emergency, that incident command, FDMY knew about it. It didn't go to the site, so people started running around all over the place. That they could direct people out the way that you needed to go based upon which way the windsocks are pointing and which way the egress is there, the quickest, fastest crosswind direction. And that's the storage vessel they brought in for us. Now, you saw the size of the four tanks that were in that, and that's what we were supposed to use to get all of it back. Slurry wall technology is something that's been used in Europe for many years in the 60s and 70s, and it's used in unstable ground surfaces. I'm not a geotechnical engineer. I've done geotech. It's by no means a specialty of mine. Um, but the World Trade Center complex was like the first big use of it in the United States. It was three foot thick, socketed to bedrock, about 80 feet down, 70 feet than the general number we use. And there were 158 panels. What's done is trenches are dug with special equipment. Concrete slurry is pumped in around a uh, rebar cage. And it's allowed to set. It's tied into the bedrock on the backside. It's strengthened to a certain number of kips, pascals, kilopascals actually, and then you dig out the center so that you can start building. And it being tied in is what holds it up. And then when you get to a certain point, you're able to cut those ties. They're called tendons. And then the building stands on its own. It puts a downward force on the outward walls. And then the river or the soil is putting the opposite force equal back into the wall, and everything's supposed to stay right the way it's supposed to stay. And it works very well. 
the biggest problem we had, and I, I, I didn't mention this because in the process of debris removal was, we had four contractors that started there on that site on the 12th of September. The one I worked for, AMIC, Bovis, which was a little south of us. You had Tully that took the east side of the site, and then you had Turner that only had Tower 7. Giuliani was, I, want, I don't want to see a pile on December 31st. I want to see flat ground. Everyone went to their marching orders. They tried to make flat ground. Well, what ends up happening is you have people removing debris at different rates. Well, the south side, for instance, the debris gets removed a little deeper. Well, that causes a little bit of a shift. We were afraid at one point that we were all removing at such different rates that we were actually going to cause the collapse of it to begin with because the slurry wall wasn't supported. And we have a weak side over there. It's essentially a weak side when you have debris out of it. It's not pushing, it's not making an outward force against that wall. So we were afraid it would collapse on one end wherever, whoever was removing the debris the fastest and following Giuliani's orders, they were going to cause the collapse of the wall and make it worse. And we, I did mention this earlier. Um, that excavation spoils pile from the center became Battery Park, which everybody knows of and around the area in the south end of lower Manhattan. Um, it's only the third time that we'd used that technology. And when it was used before that, it wasn't used for much. Nothing of this magnitude by any means. Um, it was also, it's been used recently for the, um, the Boston Central Artery Project, the 12-mile uh, tunnel under Boston. And that's kind of how it goes. You put the slurry wall in, the black. Then you, you drill in and you try and, and reestablish those ties. They actually brought in a company from Australia to try and reestablish the cables. The cables were left in the ground. All they did was cut the trumpets, the inside tie back on the wall. And they tried for two or three weeks. They brought their equipment all the way from Australia. They tried to tie it back, and we, they couldn't be done. So we decided, redrill them. We've got to get this done. And what we would do is we would remove tiers. There were, I think, four tiers of trumpets, of tiebacks in that. And they would go around and they would do one tier. Then as we would move debris and get clear, they would do the next tier. And we'd work all the way to ground until we got to the final 70-foot basement of the site. And that's kind of what it looked like. That's one of them right there, over here. This trumpet process. You see them sticking out of the wall. That's the actual cable that's drilled into bedrock and grouted, and then a tension is put on it, and that's supposed to hold this whole thing up. As you can see, that was a ramp that we used to get down deeper into the site over time. A lot of these things were temporary. Uh, once we found they were stable, we would use them. Then they would go away as we need to get other places. The, uh, ah, this is something you look Anybody here into heavy construction or even house construction? That's essentially a rim joist for Tower 2. And that's how you install it. You get a drill rig out there, you set it up, you drill it about a 45 degree angle, you get it into bedrock, you grout it, and then you start pulling tension on it. And that's the limit of my expertise on this one. But we would get plans to say where everyone was working. The panels were numbered. They were actually labeled and then numbered. V for VC Street, West 
W for West, C for Church, and we would figure out where everyone's working on that night so you knew where everybody was. And that's the actual plans from the tiebacks when, they were, when the building was put in. We had to dewater around the slurry wall to take the back pressure off. So we had drillers out there working. That driller actually worked with me at Camp Edwards. We were doing explosive remediation at Camp Edwards. And that driller actually worked with me there, strangely enough. Didn't know it when I went there. And these guys were stuck in the middle of all this activity. And drill rigs are noisy. The site is noisy. These guys don't hear things. And he's set up right here, right in the middle of all this traffic pattern. So that was a health and safety logistics nightmare, too. It just had to be done. And that's kind of the way it looked for the roadways. We, we made circular patterns for debris. And we used the BFC as one of those because that was easy to spot. No one, no one could miss the BFC. We placed those wells close to the slurry wall to dewater, away from surf, subsurface structures that were highly more transmissive to groundwater, and also the path tunnel that was under the building. And they were also, unfortunately, close to debris. And we're at the last slide, gives, or second to last slide. Um, that gives you the, ton the, the idea of what was done there over that eight and a half, nine month period. We had 3,500 workers there, 3.18 million man hours. No one died, a very few number of people hurt. Most people that were hurt wanted to be back that next day. Most of them came back within three or four days, which I think is absolutely phenomenal. We had, at that point, 238 workers comp claimed, and I'm going to leave you with this. Because I worked the night shift. I liked the night shift because more work got done. But it was also, from what I read later on, later on more challenging psychologically. And I found that quote sometime after. Very good. I'm sure uh, Dwayne said he would be able to stick around afterwards and, and uh, answer a few questions and be sure and look at the artifact table. Um, you know, I look around at all of us. I think all of us remember where we were that day, right? So anyhow, Dwayne, thank you very much for being here. I'd like to present you. <laughs> this is our Share What You Can Award. Uh, we're going to be presenting a meal uh, to a worthy person in this community for the, with the Share What You Can Award in your honor. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay. Appreciate it. Alrighty. So one thing I want to point out for visitors and guests, the, uh, the fine that I imposed on um, past president Tom Thomas is not really a real fine. I mean, Tom has pledged, as, as we all have, to what we're going to do for the rotary. So I don't want to scare anybody off that might be looking at joining our club today. So, and Tom is one of our, uh, an excellent uh, giver. And I think that we all remember too, when this happened, how our club stepped up and helped out um, with, through other rotary clubs back in the New York area after this. So we, we raised a significant amount of money. So thank you for that. Um, as we leave here today, let us go forth into the world in peace. Be of good courage, hold fast that which is good.
Render to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the afflicted. Honor all persons. Love and serve each other. Rejoicing in the fellowship of Rotary. Be people of action. Be the inspiration. And you're off to great places. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting. So let's get on our way. Meeting adjourned. We hope you enjoyed this podcast of our latest meeting. If you'd like to know more about our projects or are interested in membership in the club, please visit us at lasvegasrotary.com. Now go forth and be the inspiration.